Good, good. Hey, let's pray together before we get into this, all right? Will you pray with me? So God, that song, I don't know what the writer was thinking of it, but it lines up with a lot with what Jesus said. He said, a lot of us have the outside, all good, we're super, everything's fantastic, we've got everybody fooled, but inside, it's a different story. Inside, there's some pain, and inside, it just feels like death. And, and, and God, we, we, we're tired, that's a really heavy burden to carry. And so we came in here, your son, Jesus, said that if we would seek first his kingdom, instead of trying to run after our own all the time, and actually look to him for what's right, that we might actually experience that in our own lives. And so, God, we're going we're gonna to go into your word and, and to the words of your son, Jesus, and we're going to see if there's something in there that actually might bring some healing to our lives, to bring some strength to our lives, bring, bring your kingdom in, into our lives. It's a better way. So teach us, a, teach us one thing about your son, Jesus, today. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Hey, we're going to jump right into this. Over the last month, two or three weeks, uh, Scott and I, we've been working our way through what's been come to, come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount. It didn't, it didn't have that title. It says Jesus had this big crowd around him, and so in order to be heard, he walked up the side of a hill a little bit, and everybody just sat down in the field so that they could hear him. And, and as Jesus walked around, and this sermon we're looking at, it took place just a couple weeks into the three years between his baptism and then when he was crucified and then rose from the dead. So it's right at the top of those three years. But all, all, all during those three years that he walked around Israel, he had really one main message that he kept saying a, a bunch of different ways, but it was the same message. It was very simple, and it goes like this. He just got in front of people and said, repent for the kingdom of God, or sometimes he said the kingdom of the heavens is near, all right? Uh, the kingdom of God is here, like as in like right here, like available to, to anybody who wants it. Jesus said, this is the good news. This is the good news. Not only can you have your sins and mistakes forgiven, but also like right now, this afternoon, the power and presence that this changes everything, kingdom of God, is available to you in this life. Not after you die, like right here on the side of this mountain or in this room today. God is, av- is available to you as the air is around your head. He's that close. God is not somewhere else on the other side of the universe floating around in a Disney castle waiting for you to die and come to him someday. No, Jesus taught us that God's kingdom, God's power is right here. He says, it's right here. And I know that's true because I brought it. I, because I came. This is why I came. I've made God's full presence and power available in, to, to your life. All you have to do is just trust me. That's why I'm here. But if, if that, all, all that is true, Jesus looked at all these people and he says to us even today, if, if that's true, you might want to repent. And by repent, that's just a Bible word, but he meant this, and it still means the same thing today. If all that's true, it's time to rethink how you think about everything. I got to rethink everything if, if God's presence and power is really available to me. Rethink how I think about God. Rethink how I think about the world and what the world can do for me and cannot do for me. Rethink about how, how I think what will work in my life and what won't. Rethink about what I believe will stand up or fall apart when the storms of life crash into the most important parts of my life. I got to rethink my life. Right? Or this is how we've been saying it in here over the last month or so. It goes like this. It is time to rethink your strategy for life given the reality that the kingdom and the presence, the power of God is available to you right now. Right now. What Jesus is calling people back then and, and us to do is, is to do this. Take your life, whatever is, makes up your life, your kingdom, all the parts of your life from this whole past week, all right? Take all the parts and pieces and the networks that make up your life and lay them in the kingdom of God. And if you'll take your life and put it inside of God's life, Jesus says it'll mean something totally different as opposed to just your life on your own. It, it changes everything. Take whatever circumstances you've gone through this whole week or we'll go through in the next week and find yourself, or find yourself in and take them and put them in, in God's kingdom, spiritually, relationally, financially, sexually, physically, rich, poor, you know, birth, funerals. Everything feels great today. Everything feels horrible today. Put them in the kingdom of God and they mean something different. 
They'll take on a new meaning. Jesus says, and he uses this word blessed, as in blessed are the. He says, you'll be good. You'll finally be able to look at your life and go, I'm good. I'm good. Through Jesus, God's kingdom is available to everybody, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your track record, and whether any of that changes in the past or the future, Jesus says, I can make you good. How? How, how, how do I do that? How do I put my life? How, how, do I, how do I enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, I can do that for you. I'm the way in. I, I can do that. I can bring you into God's presence. I, I can take, take away anything that has the potential to keep you out, and I can give you a new life. He's not just talking about a do-over or a second chance at this life, a new life from above. I want, I want, a, I want a brand new life, all right? I want, I want to be a new person. Jesus says, that's what I'm talking about. I can do that. Jesus says, I can make you good. You've been trying for a long time. I can do that. I can make you good. I'm good. Now, hold on to that. We'll come back to it. Paul said it a different way a few years later. He said this, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Jesus, we might become the, what's the word? Righteousness of God. Hold on to that word righteousness. We're going to come back to that. And the moment that Jesus opened his mouth and said that, the moment, again, this is just a couple weeks into his whole ministry, and this is just, uh, just, just right, right out of the front, but the moment that Jesus opened his mouth and said, the kingdom of God, the presence of God, the power of God is available to anybody who wants it, right after this talk, they started having meetings about having him killed. We can't have somebody walking around there saying, saying stuff like that. We, we've got we to shut him up. And that's where we're going to pick up, right where Scott left off last week. Last week. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus is out there on the side of this mountain, a bunch of people sitting in a field, and he's talking. All right, here's what he says. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, why would Jesus feel like he had to say that? You know, I mean, I, I, 10 minutes into his talk, he goes, I didn't come to throw out the Bible. I didn't come to do away with everything you learned going to school and Hebrew school and all that, the prophets and the Ten Commandments and all that, right? No, what, what, what it takes to be in God's presence or to, to be a good person. I didn't come to throw out any of that. Why would Jesus feel like he needed to say that right at the, at the top of this talk? And, he, and here's the reason. There were a bunch of people in that crowd, just like, like in this crowd right now, listening to what Jesus said, and it sounded like Jesus had just stood up and said, hey, that whole Bible thing, don't worry about that. I'm going to throw out all the law and the prophets. I'm gonna, don't even worry about the first two-thirds of your Bible. Just rip that out. Just pick it up at the birth all the way to the end. That's all that matters. That's what it felt like he said. You say, well, why? Why do people think he said that? And the answer is because of what Scott's been talking about the last two weeks in here. So, all right, well, what do you mean? Jesus had just pointed to a bunch of messy, broken people out there on the side of that mountain, a bunch of people that most religious people had never even considered and said, see them? They're the light of the world. They're, they're the salt of the earth. They, they are, my, my father looks at them and says, they're blessed. They're welcome and they're invited to place their life into God's kingdom like right now. And the moment they do that, they could do that in this field right now. And the moment they put their faith and trust in me, God will look at them and go, you're good. I declare you good, righteous, on the spot, in a field. As in, you're good enough. You're right enough to be and live your life interactively with God right now from this point on. And that made, and it still makes religious people lose their minds. What do you mean? Religion. Religious people hate to hear Jesus say stuff like that. It's open to anybody. See, religion has always and still does try to redefine how a person becomes right enough to be with God. All religions are the same. Think about it. They're all the same. They all say the same thing. Live your life the right way now, and maybe someday you can possibly be with God. Think of any religion you know about. They all say the same thing. You you, you live your life the right way, according to so-and-so, now... And maybe someday, cross your fingers, hopefully you can possibly be with God someday. And Jesus comes along and he stands up and goes, hey, listen, you've tried that now for several thousand years. 
How's that working for you? How, how's that going, going, going for you, right? So how about this? It, it doesn't work. So how about, we, how, about we, how, about, how about we rethink it? We rethink our strategy, our, our way to approach God, more like this. And here's what Jesus threw out. How about you live your life interactively with God right now and with God in you and around you, it actually becomes possible to begin to live the right way if God would move inside of you first. And that drove, and it still drives religious people crazy. I don't like that. I don't want to hear that because that, with that kind of approach to God, I mean, think about it. This is where it goes. All kinds of people will actually think that they have a chance at being with God. And we can't have that, right? I mean, if we start preaching stuff like that, people will start flocking to God. Get this, before they clean up their lives, and how do we know if they're sincere, Right? I mean, if we go that route, think about what happens. Our churches, our synagogues will be filled up and crowded with all kinds of uh, broken, messy, poor in spirit, mourning, hungry, meek, merciful, persecuted people who actually think they're allowed to, to have a piece of God. And how will we know if they mean it or not? I mean, look, look at it. Look at those people out there in that field. Look at the people around this room. They, 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 they shouldn't even be allowed to be in a place like this because they have nothing to offer God or anybody else. So we'll take care of it, says the religious, the religious people. See, we've studied the Bible a lot. We've memorized big chunks of it. And we, we've gone to special schools, and we have a, a list of hoops to jump through. And we have a spiritual tape measure and rules and requirements about who's in with God and who's out with God. We are the keepers of the gate to God. That's religion. We have the official clipboard and the official checklist. We have the official holy whistle of righteousness. And nobody gets into heaven unless we blow this whistle. That's more Monty Python, but go with it. All right? So anyway, so... But right there, when Jesus opens his mouth on the side of that mountain and says, okay, there, there's two different ways to approach this, he drew a line, a dividing line, and it was a battle line, and, and there's going to be a fight. See, on one side, Jesus looks at all these confused, ready to give up hope, broken, messy people that he had just told, you can have God in your life right now, and he'll change your life. And then on the other side of the line, he had all these re- official religious people who were saying, no, 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 Jesus, it's not that easy. It's not that easy to be with God. No, no, no. First, you've got to clean up some stuff and stop doing this and start doing it and change your life now, and then maybe someday you'll be good enough to have God in your life. And Jesus looks at, at, at both sides of that line and says, listen, you can do any way you want. You can approach God any way that you want, but you better, you better be careful. Be careful because this is what he says in verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness, your goodness, surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, the people making up the rules, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, hey, folks, listen, do whatever you want, but be careful about what system, what strategy that you sign up for that you actually believe will will, will gain you access to God. Here's why you ought to be careful, because whatever you sign up for, you're stuck with it. You're stuck with it. And Jesus says, you can go with me and I'll give you a new good life starting right now. And I'll begin to change you on the inside so that eventually your outside will eventually match up with what, what the good thing God's doing in, on the inside. Or you can go on the other side of the line, you can go with what the Pharisees and the religious rule keepers define as righteousness and hope that if you dress up or camouflage the outside so that it actually looks good, other people will assume and maybe you can tell yourself, I must be good, even though you know it's not true. Jesus says it doesn't work. But if that's the strategy you choose, okay, but just so you know, if you go with the rules, all right, you'll have to do it better than the people making up the rules because they can't even keep their own rules. You've got to be better than anybody else has ever been. Jesus says, you might want to rethink that. You might want to rethink your strategy for life because one works, one can actually make you truly good and give you life. Jesus says that would be mine. And the other one might look good on the surface but it ha- and it has the appearance of life, but it's all about death. And it'll kill you inside and eventually outside. And the rest of that chapter and the next chapter, Jesus exposes and contrasts the two different strategies that people there on the side of that mountain 2,000 years ago and all of us in this room 
or trying to live our lives by? What, how am I going to live my life? And the bottom line question that everybody throughout history has been trying to answer simply goes like this. How do I know if I'm good? How do I know if I'm a good person? How do I know if I'm good enough to be, a God, to, to be with God? What makes a person good? And let's look at that, all right? Because that, that word good, the biblical word for good, as in I, I finally I'm a good person, is righteous. Or, or the Greek word for, for righteous is dikaiosune. Dikaiosune. Say that. One, two, three. Di- you speak Greek. You're so spiritual. Look at that, all right? I'm so spiritual, all right? But dikaiosune, righteous means this. What makes a person good? What's in a person that makes them good? The goodness of something, all right? So something's righteous, you're, you're referring to what makes them good. So whenever we read about or, or hear someone like me or read in the Bible or something like make a reference to the righteousness of God. If you read the Bible for more than five minutes, you'll find that in there. The righteousness of God. The reference is to the kind of goodness that God has. The kind of thing that makes God good, which is revealed in Jesus. And whenever Jesus refers to the, the righteousness of God being available to people like us, he's referring to the goodness that comes from God. He gives it to us when we put our faith in Jesus. And he's not just talking about our sins are forgiven and our condemnation is, is taken away so that after we die, we don't go to hell, we go to heaven, although it certainly includes that. But it's more than that. It's about this life, too. Like Scott talked about last week, it's that heart-changing inward effect that results in the downstream transformation of the outer life lived all week long. That's what Paul wrote about, about what God gave us when Jesus took our sin on the cross. God gave us his goodness and put it in us, his own goodness. And that's what Jesus is referring to when he says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And whatever is in the heart is the goodness or whatever is, 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 is stored up in there. It's either goodness, it's the righteousness of God, or you have something else stored up in your heart. But whatever, it's going to come out. Eventually, it's going to come out, all right? And that's what we're going to look at today. So according to Jesus, the righteousness or goodness that comes from God has the power to change your heart and begin to transform you into the person, into the kind of person whose life actually lines up with what God says, that's good, the kind of person that Jesus is. He does that from the inside out. But the righteousness of the Pharisees and of religion talks about God, but has very little to actually do with God and is mostly concerned with control of other people and comparison with other people. As a matter of fact, if you want to tick off religious people, anybody, it's fun, all right? If you really want to tick off some self-righteous religious people, all right, just in a conversation, just bring up, just bring up the love of God, They'll lose their mind, all right? You, 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 look, you look at a religious, self-righteous person, just ask them this question. Tell me what God's doing in your heart. They'll get angry. They'll get angry. They'll get super defensive and immediately offensive. Who do you think you are? My heart's none of your business, all right? Do you know who I am? I go to church like four times a week. I mean, I'm, I'm so spiritual. Who are you to question me? I am better than, and then they'll point at somebody that's less good than them, or at least it looks like it. You want, you want to take off a religious person, just bring up the love of God. Why? Why so angry, all right? Why do religious people get so angry with what Jesus is about to teach? And that's what Jesus is about to blow out of the water. He's going he's to expose the righteousness of rule-based religion. A lot of us are raised in that. Do this, don't do this. If you do it wrong, go to hell. If you do it right, you might go to heaven, all right? Rule-based religion. And here's what he's about to blow out of the water for this whole rest of this sermon. First of all, rule-based religion goes like this. It seeks the honor that comes from men and not from God. Religion doesn't really care about God. It's like, what, what would people think? That's religion. It brings about bondage to appearance and opinions and self-justification. In the name of religion, we can justify anything we want to do. It says one thing and does another. Jesus calls this out like 10 times throughout the sermon. That's just hypocrisy. Religion murders for a good cause. It's amazing what we can do in the name of God, isn't it, to one another? It is concerned with keeping people out of the kingdom, not bringing more people in. You shouldn't be here. People like you shouldn't be here. That's religion. It is covetous and wealth-seeking. 
I got to look good. You know, to look good, I need money. So religion's always about money, right? How about this? It defines righteousness by externals but ignores the heart. And that's the song the band just sang, right? On the outside, I'm good. I'm awesome. Look at me. I'm just fantastic. Everybody would think that I'm, I'm, I just got my stuff together. But on the inside, I'm, I'm dead. Jesus said, that, that, that's actually a play off of the story Jesus said. It's like going to a cemetery and looking at this building going, that building is beautiful. It's ornate. It's all whitewashed. And it's just, it's just beautiful, ornate. You open the door, it's full of death. It's a mausoleum. Religion. Religion. You've been to that church, right? You walk in, it's all this beautiful building. It's full of death. It's religion. What Jesus is about to call out and contrast is the, the, the righteousness of the heart that God cares about and offers and gives us through faith in Jesus and the righteousness of religion that has little to do with God and everything to do about how you look compared to other people. So he's going to call out some big ones. Here we go. Here we, he's going to say, this is what religion says. I'm, I'm going to show you something better than this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. He says, now you've heard it said, this is Old Testament, that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders is subject to judgment. So Jesus just calls out a truth that everybody on that mountainside and everybody in this room knows, all right? I mean, it's one of the big Ten Commandments, and it goes like this. If you physically murder another person, that's bad. Write that down. I should know. Right, right, right. <laughs> if you physically murder another person, you have broken one of the rules that makes a person in or out with God. And religion looks at that and goes, great, I'm fine then. I'm fine, all right? As, as long as I don't physically murder a person, I can assume that, that I'm righteous. I'm, 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 I'm a good person, all right? So by show of hands, anybody murdered anybody? It's flat irons. You never know, right? <laughs> right? So if you just go religious logic and, and look at that and then go, well, then obviously we're a righteous crowd. We're good. We are good people. How can you say that? We've never murdered anybody. Jesus says, well... Listen, God, God's looking for a little bit more than that. He has a little bit higher standard. God is concerned in wanting much more for his people than, well, at least they don't murder each other. That's good. Jesus says, no, no, there's, there's more. He says, here's what the goodness, the righteousness of God is all about. It's not just about this law about don't murder people. He says this, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or, or another person will be subject to, and this is how it translates out, the same judgment as a murderer. Anyone who's angry with his brother is subject to the same judgment as the murderer. Now, now hold on, all right? Because you're going to do this several times throughout this talk. Are you saying that Jesus says that it's a sin? It's never okay to be angry. Is that, is that the rule here? Now, before we even go on with the rest of the sermon, all right? Or the, the rest of the series, you've you got to do something. You've got to try to do something, all right? As you listen to this, you've got to do your best to not try to take the, the words of Jesus and turn them into rules. This is what the church has done for, for years and years. Jesus said that. It's a rule, all right? And if you do it this way, then, 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 then you go to heaven. If you don't, no, no, no. This, that's not what the Sermon on the Mount is about. It's actually the opposite of that. Jesus is describing, he's painting a picture of this is what a person's life could look like if you took whatever's going on in your life and put it in the kingdom of God. It's not a list of if you love Jesus, you always have to do this. But if you love Jesus, you're never allowed to do that. No, no. Jesus is not saying don't ever get angry. That's ridiculous. Right, well, how can you say that, Pastor Jim? Because Jesus got angry. Anybody here been angry? You're just like Jesus. See, you got one. All right. I'm like Jesus. I'm angry. All right. So, all right. So, so it's good. See, everybody gets angry. Everybody has a reason to be angry. There are good reasons to be angry. You ought to be angry. But let me ask you this. Whenever you've heard, maybe in your life or somebody else's life, on the news, whatever, and you heard there was a murder, question in every case, why did one person murder the other person? And the answer is because they got really angry, right? A angry, right? So, 
And, and murder is a, is, a, is a symptom of anger. Anger where? Anger in the heart. And eventually out of the overflow of the heart, someone got killed. Right? And Jesus says murder is a symptom of something else going on. And rules against murder on the outside will never be as effective as dealing with the root cause of murder, which is anger built up in my heart. And then when enough anger builds up, it comes out and eventually something's dying. It's just, it's just true. See, we, we all get anger. A- anger is all about the same stuff. Anger is always about being insulted. All right? Someone hurt me, all right? And, and, and that, that I want to pay him back. Anger always asks, do you know who I am? Who do you think you are that you can do that to me? You're in my way. And I'm angry about it. And anger eventually wants to punish, to, to hurt, and eventually to kill whatever's standing in the way of King me or Queen you. Get out of my way. I'm not getting what I want. And if you don't get out of my way, I'll hurt you. That's anger. And Jesus knows that's where anger always goes. And so Jesus says, hey, I, I have this, let's re, re, rethink anger, right? Let's bring anger out and look at it so it never builds up and spins out into murder. Let's bring it out. And you say, what do you mean, bring anger out? Out of where? Out of our hearts. Let's put it out in front of us. Go, let's look at why we're, why we're angry. Now, religion goes, my heart is none of your business. You, know, you, you, you just back off. I, I haven't murdered anybody. That's, that's, so just shut up. That, that, that's enough. I haven't murdered any, anybody. I'm good. Don't judge me. And Jesus looks at him and goes, and I think he said, it just, it's not even being condescending. He just looks at him and goes, it's a matter of time. It's a matter of time until you do. And let's just, let's just bring it into this room, all right? If you were honest, just look in the rearview mirror of your life. You've been killing people in relationships for years right? Little by little, right? Why? Because your life, your heart is so full of anger. And Jesus isn't done. I mean, that's enough. Stop. No, Jesus is getting warmed up. Here's the rest of that. He says this again. So I'm going to keep on going, folks. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. I'll explain that in a second. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So again, Jesus calls out an accepted external physical rule that goes like this. Back in Jesus' day, if you were to look at another person and say, Raka, that was like, that was like the, in the, their language, it would be the ultimate insult. A lot of times people would say Raka, then they'd say a person's name, then they'd spit. Raka, Jim, pff, you get the idea. I don't think she likes me, all right? all right? It was like the ultimate insult. And, and if you got caught by the religious police back then, you could get hauled in and go, that's not very nice, and you need to stop acting that way, right? But Jesus says, Oh, let's not stop there. How about this? Anybody who says to another person, you fool, which is another way of going, you're stupid, you don't even matter. You say to another person, you, you fool, you're in danger of the fire of hell. Now, now, when Jesus says fire of hell, he's making a double reference here on purpose, all right? He uses his words carefully because he's really smart. And most obviously, he's, he's, he's certainly referring to what happens to a person if they die and they have sins in their life that are not for, forgiven, all right? They go, they go to this place, all right? But, but in this cultural context, when Jesus throws out the, the term the fire of hell, everybody on that hillside, their minds exactly went to the same place because the fire of hell is also a reference for the city dump located outside of every town where all the used up, throwaway, don't have any use for that anymore, worthless garbage is gathered up and burned. And when Jesus says fire of hell, that's what people thought. And what Jesus is getting at is this. It's not just impolite or, or not nice because it hurts people's feelings when you say raka or you don't matter to another person. Jesus peels back the service and goes, oh, no, no, no. I know. A lot more is going on there. What do you mean? It's a life strategy to get what you want. And the name of your strategy is contempt. You are angry. Step two, contempt. What do you mean? Contempt, by definition, is the, the intentional decision, that's a strategy, to devalue or rename someone as something much less than they're actually worth so that you can treat them much less than they actually deserve. We're really good at it. 
So what does that have to do with the fires of hell, city, city dump? Very simple. Let's do the math in your head. If you get angry enough with somebody and you want to do something to them, right? But you know that it's wrong to actually do that to them. The solution is simply rename them. Assign them a lower value. And now you can do whatever you want to them. You can even throw them away like they're trash in a dumpster. And you don't even have to feel bad about what you did to them. You can feel good about it. You can feel good about yourself. After all, raka, they're just throwaway people. And now I can do what I want. Now, now time out here, right? Do you realize... This is extra. This is free, all right? Do you realize how much of the world's problems just, just go away if, if anger, emotion that builds up and eventually says, I'm going to do what I want to do, and contempt, seeing people and renaming people and assigning them lesser value so that you can do to them what you want to do to them in order to get your way. Do you see how different the world becomes, how different your life becomes if you get that anger out in front of us and deal with it so it doesn't spin out of control? And keep on ruining everything if we get that out of the picture. And this isn't hypothetical. Jesus doesn't then dismiss them and go, pray about that. No, he says, let's get into, let's get into some real-life, everyday examples that have devastated half the people, most of the people on this hillside, and I would say have touched almost every one of us in this room. No stones thrown. He's just going to call out reality here. So here's an example, all right, of here's, here's religion, and here's, here's, here's what I say is a better way. Verse 27, he says, well, you've heard it that it was said... Do not commit adultery. All right? So, so you have all these religious people walking around claiming to be, I'm so righteous. I'm so spiritual. I'm so holy. How can you say that? I've never committed adultery. Never cheated on my wife, husband. They'd never done it with another person since they'd married this current one. And so they measured their rightness, their goodness, by what they had not done physically or sexually. All right? I'm good because I've what, what I've not done. And Jesus looks at him. You got to think he just shakes his head and goes, dude, I know. I, I, I know, all right? I know what's going on behind the scenes. I know what's going on in here. So he just calls it out. I, well, I'll tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So every religious man in that, on that hillside and every man in this room, you might not be able to find it in the Bible, but you know it's in there, that, that physically committing adultery with somebody that you're not married to is, that's a sin. But Jesus knows what's going on then and here. And the religious men back then and in this room right now, we are famous for objectifying women and devouring them with our, with our eyes and fantasize about having sex with them in our minds and in our heart. But we can still show up to church or temple or synagogue and claim to be righteous. I'm good with God. Why? Because I've never actually done it yet. So I'm good. Now, let's just clear this up for everybody. Let me give you the definition of lust, according to Jesus, when he says, looks at a woman lustfully. And we're just going to bring this into 2015, because it's a, the same truth, but it's just a different world here. It's not just men lusting after women. Let's just be equal, all right? It's men lusting after men. It's women lusting after men. It's women lusting after, It's across the board. So we're looking at when one person looks at a person lustfully. This is what Jesus means. I look at her or him for the purpose of fantasizing what I would do to her or him if I could get away with it, if I wouldn't get caught, if there weren't any consequences. I'm not not having sex with her or him because I care about him or her. I don't really. I haven't really thought about that. Or because it's wrong. That's not even in my mind. Or because I see them as a valuable son or daughter of God. I didn't even think about that. No. The only reason I'm not having sex with that person yet is because either they won't let me or I'd get in trouble if I got caught. But that's the only reason. Because if you took those two things away, I'd be in bed with them right now. See, this, this is worth remembering, all right? This just clears up so much. Lust is not about what I, what I do. That's rules and regulations. It's about what I would do if I could. That's what Jesus is calling out. Let's get that out in the room. And Jesus is saying, I'm telling you, call it whatever you want. Your heart's messed up. 
Your heart's messed up. There's something going on in here. You're angry and you're frustrated that you can't get what you want when you want it. In this case, sex. But then you see her, you see him, and you think, I know what I want, and I could use him or her to get what I want. But in order to do that and to feel good about myself, I'm going to have to give her a new name. So she's not a woman. She's a, and you fill in the blank. She's a piece of, and think about men, how, how we do this. We, we substitute, she's a piece of what? Then we substitute in a body part or an animal name or an object, but not a woman. We call her name. She's a slut. She's a whore. She does this all the time. That's all she's worth. She's been doing it many, many other times. So it's what she's asking for. So I'm going to use her to do what I want to do to her in secret or in my mind or in my heart until I build up enough anger and frustration or courage to actually do it with her with my body. And then Jesus says, Really? Okay, if that's how you're going to live your life, let me just throw out a solution. See, see if this will fix anything. Why, why don't you see if this works? Look at verse 29. So, okay, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. And you've got to think that every man on that mountainside stopped breathing. Huh? Right? And every man in this room is going, oh, I don't like where this is going. Right, right? He's like, you've got to think they're saying, what, what did, kids, get, get in the car. Go. Let's go home. This guy is nuts. What, what did he just say? Did he just say that if any part of my body keeps getting me into a sinful sexual situation, the solution is I ought to gouge it out or cut, cut off the offending body part? Hey, dude, do you think he means, yeah, yeah. So, so let, me, let me answer that question. Is that what Jesus meant? Write this down. Yes. Yeah, listen, Jesus wasn't talking hypothetically or metaphorically. Every preacher I've ever heard in my whole life says, it's symbolic. No, it's not. He's, he's the only one. No, I, I mean it. He used the, the, an imperative verb. It's a command. You gouge it out, you cut it off, and get rid of it. Well, so what, what do I mean? He meant it literally. Well, think about this. If, big word here, if cutting off something on the outside of your body would actually be effective in controlling a person's tendency or temptation to commit sin. If lobbing off body parts worked, then it makes sense, all right? It would be better to lose one eye or one hand or one whatever if the result was, and then I never was tempted to sin again. It worked. If that worked, if that worked can you imagine what we'd all look like when we got to heaven? <laughs> I mean, we, we'd be a bunch of bloody, mutilated, blind stumps flopping into heaven. I made it, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Dude, where's your nose? Noses are sexy. I chainsawed my face. I'm so righteous, you know? Oh, you're so holy. Thank you. Right? right? Big word if. See, if, if that works, we should do it. If that fixed us, we, 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 should, we should go for it, right? But Jesus' point is just the opposite. Everybody take a, oh, good, keep preaching. Go, 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 keep going, right? See, measuring your rightness or assuming that you're a good person because you haven't done something sexually wrong in a literal, physical way or by cutting off a body part to make sure you never do it or never do it again is no guarantee and will have no effect. There is no connection whatsoever to the righteousness that God cares about in a person's heart. In other words, let's get, get, in, get in our faces, all right? You can go your whole marriage and never have a physical, sexual affair with another person and still be a horrible husband, or wife, and have, a, have, a, have just a crappy marriage, even though you can look at the other one and go, but at least I've never had an affair. Well, good for you. You know, maybe your genitals didn't have an affair, but your husband or your wife knew that your mind and your heart sure did, and they knew that you and your heart was somewhere else with somebody else, even when you were physically in bed with them, and you know what I'm talking about. And so did Jesus, and he just calls it out. And you think that that would be enough, but he's just getting warmed up. So he dresses the next Technically, I'm keeping the rules to feel good about myself that, that religion always employs. Look at this next one. 
gets tough. Now, don't leave, okay, because you've got to hear the whole thing. Because if you, if you listen to only part of this, you, you're, you're going to get it wrong. And you're, you're going to walk out here really, really, really under condemnation. I don't want you to do that. So listen to this, all right? This is Jesus. He says, it has been said, this is Old Testament law, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Go. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Now, take a breath. Take, take a breath because this statement by Jesus is less about the rules of when a person can or can't get a divorce and it's all about what's going on in the heart of a person going through a divorce. That's what this sermon is about, right? So please hear this. This is not a blanket statement about all divorce. I memorized two verses out of the Bible and there they are. And I took him to court, right? This is not a blanket statement about divorce. It is one of the most common taken out of context teachings pointed to by Christians defending the biblical grounds for or against theirs or somebody else's divorce. But let's be clear. Let, let's be clear, right? If you're going to read this verse taken from this sermon that Jesus has given about what, what does and does not make a person good or righteous and apply it literally in all cases for all people in all situations, then you must out of integrity... Let's be fair, take every other statement that Jesus makes in this entire message, take it just as literally and apply that to yourself. Anybody want to play by those rules? So yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, great, Pharisees and whistleblowers. If you want to do that, line up and get the chainsaws ready and the pointy eye gougers ready and prepare to lose a lot of teeth, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, get slapped in the face and you're not allowed to defend yourself and get ready for this because it's coming in the next chapter. Go ahead and by faith, stop worrying, quit your job and literally go sit in your front yard naked and wait for God to drop food and clothing in your lap so God can feed you and clothe you and your family just like he does the birds and flowers. Is that what you want to do? Let's get literal, right? Listen, how about this? If you're going to go legalistic, then go all the way. But you don't get to pick and choose which Bible verses apply for other people and which verses don't have to apply for you. Can I get an amen? amen? See? See, but as always, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus isn't passing out the official rules of divorce in order to be okay with God and rules about what happens if you do it wrong. No. The church has been doing that for thousands of years. Jesus is saying, you don't want that to be the strategy that you pick for your life. Because once you do, it, it, once you buy into that, you have no control of where it takes you. And Jesus knows legalism never takes you to a good place. Has legalism ever helped anybody? No, it kills. See, Jesus is talking about what it looks like to be the kind of person who has the kind of heart that allows him or her to jump in and out of marriage at will simply because they don't want to do it anymore. I want to do something different, no matter who gets hurt. And I know I made some promises, but my feelings or my heart changed to make me feel better about it, I pointed my finger at what somebody else did wrong, and I did the paperwork properly. Because I did that legally, I'm good. And Jesus says, I call BS on that. He didn't say that, but I did. All right, but <laughs> Jesus calls it out and goes, listen, listen, folks, listen. If you think that you can point to proper paper, paperwork, or get this, even, this is going to make some religious people mad. Even if you can point to a Bible verse that gives you biblical grounds to divorce your spouse, and you think that being right, I'm right. That that alone, or I'm less wrong than her or him, if that makes you free and clear and not responsible for throwing your marriage away, you're fooling yourself. You're not fooling God. Let's just call this out in the room, all right? Listen, is divorce ever good? Ask any divorced person. No, it's horrible. Here's a follow-up. Is divorce sometimes necessary? Yes. Yes. Was it ever God's plan for us? No. We live in a broken world. We're really mean to each other. Sometimes we got, we, we've got to be protected, all right? Does anyone ever walk away from divorce with no consequences? No. 
See, what Jesus is pointing to is not, was that person's divorce right or wrong, right? No, what Jesus is saying or he's pointing out is, is this, even if it was right, even if it was necessary, any person thinks that they can just kick their, cur- their, their spouse to the curb without a second thought, which is common in Jesus' day and is common in this day, all right? Jesus says, your marriage and your spouse is not your biggest problem. Your heart is. It's messed up. What's that mean? It means, okay, it's hard, but let's, let's be honest. If you will look at, 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 at most people, yours or somebody else, who have gone or are going through divorce, if you really, really, really push into that, whether it, had, you know, it had, may or may not include adultery or not, but, but every divorce somewhere in there is one or two hearts just full of anger and contempt and justifiable. Yeah, I'm angry. I'm, I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I'm mad. I'm hurt. And I want to hurt them back. I'm not getting what I want. And they're standing in my way and they won't give it to me. And I'm angry and it's built and built and built and built and built. And then that leads to contempt. I want to do what I want, but I can't. So I'm going to treat my spouse with contempt. I'm going to push her or him down. I'm going to treat myself with contempt. I'm going to allow myself to be treated with contempt by another person. I'm going to cheat with another person. By doing that, I'm actually treating that other person with contempt because I don't care about them. I don't love them. I just, I just want to use them, all right? I'm pushing one person aside and down so I can be without them or I can be with another person. But to make myself feel better about it, I point to a Bible verse or a legal document and say, don't blame me because I'm right or at least I'm not as wrong as her. Now, this is, okay, let's just push into this. Jesus is using adultery and divorce as examples, but the list doesn't stop there, does it? I mean, you think about it. Anger and contempt are at the root of most of the problems of your life, aren't they? Everything that hurts in your life, you could, somewhere in there is, is, is anger and contempt. I mean, let's be honest. Some of us, you know what? We're, we're still angry about our last divorce, and it's ruining this, this marriage. And it's ruining what's going on with our kids or, or, or our, own, our own marriage, all right? We're, we're still upset about our parents' divorce. It happened 50 years ago, right? That, that, so, so anger and contempt, that explains a lot of stuff with your parents. I hate her, right? What? Anger, contempt. It explains why so many of our friendships blew up. It explains why you got fired from so many jobs. It explains pornography, sexual crimes, racism, terrorism, hate crimes. It's all linked to that. I'm angry. I got to blame somebody, Right? I can't do what I want. I can't have sex casually with that, that woman, but I can have it with a fill-in-the-blank. I have to blame someone for my, my unfair, hard life, so let's blame the insert racial slur here, right? I hate my life, so I blame and I beat up on all the wrong people. Doesn't that explain so much? But it is impossible for any of that to actually happen unless out of anger someone decides to view another person or allow themselves to be viewed with contempt. I will do to you what I want to do to you because you're nothing or I am nothing. Raka, do what you want. Now, I'm going to stop there. It's like, good. Happy Mother's Day. Let's get out of here, right? (laughs) But here's what I want to do, okay? So, So Jesus is not the kind of teacher who just says, okay, think about that. Go home and eat lunch, all right? He wants that to sink in. So we're going to do something. You don't have to do this. And I know, I've heard the conversation. I got in the emails. Since you got back from Africa, Jim, you're just really weird. I know, all right? And we're probably going to get weirder here. But, but I, you don't have to do this. But I want, I want this, this teaching to sink in, all right? So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. You don't have to. But would you just close your eyes for, for, for a couple minutes? Just get everything out of your lap and just take a breath. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about something really hard in your life. That's not hard to do, is it? or painful, or confusing, or a scary thing, or time in your life. You might be in the middle of it right now. It might have been in the past. I don't know. But if it's, it's just, it's just, it's, yeah, yeah, this is going on in my life. Here's what I want you to ask yourself. Keep your eyes closed. 
Where's anger involved in what's going on? Not is it. No, where is it? Where is anger involved in what's going on in what's going on in your life? And what is it that, that's making you so angry? I mean, you have a reason, but what, what, bottom, what is it? Here's a little harder question. Are you really angry at what's going on right now? Or are you more angry because what you're going through right now feels like or reminds you of something that's happened in the past or has been happening for a long time and what you're going through right now just brings it all back up? Years of stored up anger. What's going on right now just triggered it. And again, be honest. Is your anger, which again, you probably have a right to be angry, but is your current anger really pointed at the right people? I mean, all week long, it's been coming out. Came out on your husband, on your wife, on your kids. Came out in traffic. Came out on your boss. Came out on your kid's coach and they made the wrong call. Came out on a different race. Came out all week long as you punished yourself. Let's get into a really, really tender spot today, all right? It's Mother's Day. The idea of Mother's Day just brings up a lot of stuff from years ago, doesn't it? Ladies, some of you are really, really angry about your current life as a mom. You just look in the mirror going, I'm, just, I'm a horrible mom. I'm not the mom. I, I'm not doing the things that I want to do, and I'm just angry about my life. Here's a really tender one. You're angry today because you want to be a mom, and something is standing in the way of you becoming a mom, and you're angry. And that anger is coming out in all the weirdest places. So how, how about this? If your anger keeps going this direction and keeps on building, maybe not tomorrow or next week, but down the road, where does that go? If things continue to go the way they're going even more, where does that go? And are you okay with that? And what are you afraid will happen if you don't keep on trying to punish everybody for what they've done wrong? So next question, what do you really want to see happen in your life? What, what, if you could be, I, all I really want is this. And is what you really want to see happen, is that even possible if anger and contempt keep calling all the shots of your life? So then Jesus shows up. And what if what Jesus says is true actually is true? And what if your best shot at being, I'm good, I'm fine, I know I'm good, I'm, I'm righteous, I'm well off, I know I'm blessed. What if, what if the, the best way, Jesus says, for that to happen is by taking your anger, including the circumstances that caused you to be angry and the circumstances that your anger has now caused in your life, what if you took all that mess and just laid that anger in the kingdom of heaven and asked Jesus, Jesus, will you give me the power to carry this? Because it's crushing me. Or maybe be so bold as to say, Jesus, will you take, take this away? I don't want this anger in my life. It's ruining everything. And what if you even said right now in this moment, I'm, I'm going to do it. I, I'm going to seek first his kingdom. I've been trying to hold my world together and it's not working. I'm going to seek first his kingdom and I'm going to run after his righteousness. I've been trying to be right and I can do it most of the time and in an unguarded moment, blah, it all comes out. So I'm going to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and believe that he'll make whatever else needs to happen, happen. Does that sound better than where this life is going to go if nothing changes? I say, yeah. Now, go ahead and open your eyes. I want to lead us in a prayer, all right? Now, I'm not stupid. I'm not naive, all right? I'm not sitting here and saying, if you'll pray a prayer right now, all the anger goes away. Praise the Lord. No, that's probably not going to happen. God can do anything, but that's probably not going to happen. But it is a step in the right direction. 
And to get to this place you're going, I want my life to be about something better, it takes a step. So we're going to pray a prayer. You're going to ask God, God, here's this anger. And you know, you know exactly why I'm angry. But rather than having to be right and having to prove something or punish people, uh, help me do the right thing with this anger. And he'll, he'll tell you. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So we're going to teach you a song after we pray, all right? So if you went to Sunday school and you were a little kid or something like that more than twice, you heard this song, all right? If you ever went to camp, you heard this song, all right? And, and so, uh, so we're going to teach it to you. And some of you go, ah, oh, I haven't heard that song in years. And some of you, it's brand new. But it's a Bible verse. You're memorizing Bible verses. I told you we're going to be a different church, all right? But you're going to learn this. And as soon as you just sit and listen to it. And then when you go, I want to sing that, then you stand up and you sing whenever you're ready to do that, all right? Let, let's pray and let's worship God. God, in this room, Oh, God, you have jumped up and down on every last nerve we have. And there's a lot of emotion in this room, a lot of conflict going on in this room, a lot, of, a lot of tenderness in this room. Let's be honest, God, there's a lot of anger that's come to the surface. Yeah, I'm mad. And we're mad not because of what Jesus said was not true. We're, we're really angry because Jesus nailed it. That's exactly how we feel, and that's exactly where it goes. And we don't like where it's gone, and we don't... We don't want it to go any further, but we really don't know what to do. So we try to be good, and we try to forgive, and we try to make amends. We try to all that, but inside, we're just really just still angry. And so God, we're just going to pull this out in front of us and keep it in front of us so it doesn't hijack us anymore. Go, I'm angry, God. I've been treating people horrible. What am I going to do? And he's going to say, let me help you with that. And God, I, I wish all the anger in the world would go away. Just the snap of my fingers or yours. But, but we're, as a church, we're just going to take one step towards your kingdom and your righteousness and trust that everything else that needs to be done, you'll take care of. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.